Do you know <coughs> who John Calvin is? Do you know his most important Bible teachings? Are you aware of your spiritual gift? Do you understand the atonement? Do you put on the armor of God? Do you participate in foot washing and fasting? And we could go on and on. And it's not that some of these things are not important, but I have never heard a Christian say in counseling or casual conversation that some of these things are the reason that they struggle in their spiritual life. I, I have the gift of exhortation. Exhortation means to <clears throat> encourage people in truth. It has to be in the truth part. So I tend to preach sermons like I'm going to teach, preach today, which is the significance of the truths. So, it won't be a through-a-passage Bible sermon. It's sort of a through-my-life Bible sermon. But I recognize that one of the truths I've not paid enough attention to my whole life is that Satan is against us, actively seeking our demise or anything he can do to compromise our relationship with God. He is real. And because we live in this physical realm of the senses and all those kinds of things, it's just incredibly difficult for us to take that so seriously that we even have a healthy fear of what he is trying to do. And then, you know, people draw these characters of him with horns and a pitchfork, and that just minimizes, makes him more safe. Uh, and others kind of mock, even in churches. Well, you know, I'm not sure exactly what he is. He is dangerous, and he is out to get you and me. And if you've trusted Christ as Savior, he cannot indwell you, and he cannot take over your life, and he cannot keep you from heaven. But don't think he doesn't have another plan. And it's not a secret plan. He's called the deceiver and the accuser, duh! Somebody says, hi. And I say, hi, I'm the deceiver and the accuser. Can I come in? <laughs> you don't have to know me even, do you? I don't think so. <laughs> but in what way is Satan most wanting to attack us, to deceive us? And I believe one way to say that is Satan's goal for those who've trusted Christ as Savior is to distort our understanding of the heart of God. Satan's goal, his relentless pursuit, and he has resources, is to come at us in every way to deceive us and to accuse us. And almost always the goal is to distort our understanding of the heart of God. I read a book 15 years ago. I can't even find it. But some books, you know, you read the title, 
table of contents in the first and last chapter. And wow, it's awesome. That's not to put the book down. It was awesome. It, it was called Five Lies That Christians Believe. And so some of this outline, whatever is taken from that, I, I just want to acknowledge that. So what are you struggling with in your Christian life? What do you tend to struggle with? Do you know where you're vulnerable? Do you focus on where Satan has been successful in deceiving you? Where his attacks, even though they don't seem like it in the first, at first, are actually to compromise our view and our understanding of the heart of God? Hey, don't, don't, don't look at me that way. I know in our churches, we've gone through periods of being terrible at this. Terrible. We have theological sermons on hell and Satan and whatever. But the application doesn't end up being, what is he trying to do? He is all out at war with your understanding of the heart of God because nothing else really is going to connect and we won't be able to connect with him and receive the blessings and grow in the truth if we don't trust his heart. So what is Satan going to lie to us about? Duh. <laughs> Duh. He knows exactly what to lie to us about. And there's a whole bunch of wonderful things in the Christian life that are necessary and good. But if we don't keep alert for his deception in our hearts, we will begin to compromise our understanding, which compromises our connection and relationship with our Father in heaven. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This may be the unbelief part. <clears throat> this is my opinion. You can disagree with me later, but I'm pretty sure there's not a person in this room whose view of the heart of God is not compromised because we have an accuser and a deceiver who was all out trying to do that and because we're a fallen race, the human race. And so, those are the things we tend to believe. Started in the garden, right? Yeah, I don't know. Do you think God's holding out on us? <laughs> it's always a part of it. So today I want us to look at, at uh, five lies. Five religious lies. Why religious well, what do you think Satan's going to lie to Christians about? Really, two and two isn't five. What? The mountains aren't beautiful. What's he going to lie to us about? He's going to lie to us about the Bible and God, and especially God's heart. Because if he can get a foothold there, he can get a foothold on everything else. Next slide. Preachers and teachers have to take care that we don't inadvertently or get sucked into compromising 
teaching, preaching, modeling, showing, being a light for Jesus Christ that is a light that misrepresents the heart of God. But so do all of you. It's great to sit there and look up here, isn't it? Uh Uh-huh. And it's great to be up here except for the incredible responsibility. My goodness. If I say anything that misinterpreted, misunderstood, or, or I make a mistake or whatever, it's not that big a deal if it's a mistake about some content of Scripture. If I do, come tell me. I want to know. But if it's a mistake that turns people to begin to believe that the heart of God is not for them, It's disastrous. And it is Satan's plan for Sunday mornings and other times as well. Don't put words in God's mouth. Let the words come out of his mouth. Make sure that we're dedicated to that. Preachers, teachers, absolutely keep double-checking. I know this is a surprise to you, but preachers get pet peeves. And you hear about them. I just wanted you to know that. I, I knew you didn't. And preachers are very influenced by their gifting. I'm not giving you a historical context or a theological definition. Very influenced by her gifting. That's why I think, and I'm not proposing a rule, that we ought to have someone else preaching once a month on average over a whole year. First of all, it gives our pastor an opportunity to be a part of the body on Sunday morning in a completely different way. But it also develops younger preachers, which we're doing. Praise God, I love that about this church. And it gives other gifting an opportunity. I think I told you about the day that I went downstairs in the church Sunday morning during Sunday school in the first church I pastored. And I opened the door and my friend Keith was... teaching a class, and there were all the people who weren't really into my preaching. Now, yeah, right, how did I know that? Because they've told me in various ways in the past. And the ones who are really into my preaching are usually have similar gifting or a, a place in life where the, that gifting and that perspective and where I came from in life speaks to them. And I tell you what, the first two years I was a preacher, I loved them. Oh, pastor, that was an amazing sermon. I don't, I hope it didn't take me two years to figure out, but it might have. But that gifting and all is part of it. And you have gifting, and you have life experience, and you have God-given personality. And you have various things in you that prefer this over that or prioritize in different ways. And you're all wrong except me. We're all needed. God made sure that we were all needed in the body of Christ to carry out the mission. And besides, he's normally doing process while we think he's doing results. And in the process, he wants us to love each other and get to know each other and become a place in relationship where people outside 
can't stand not to be a part of it because it meets their deepest needs. Like when we have those relationships, it meets our deepest needs. But Satan hates that. Next slide. <clears throat> Five lies that distort God and stifle Christian growth. Dangerous religious deceptions that sound holy but are not from God's Word. That's pretty good, huh? It wasn't from the book. <laughs> now, why do you have to be so wordy? Let's just say Satan wants you to know these things. These are fake truths that sound holy. Satan wants us to know the truth as he sees it. And he whispers lies. He appeals to our humanness, our fallenness. He uses the life situations. He whispers perspectives into those. And sometimes it doesn't even seem like his goal is to tear down our relationship with God by causing us to question God's heart. But that's where he's going. Next slide. The first fake Bible truth. Here's something Satan wants you to know. If I was a good Christian, I wouldn't feel angry, anxious, sad, or discouraged. If the slide was bigger, you'd have had a lot more on there. Most of them I've experienced. I shouldn't be preaching. I... I've been there on all those things. That means what? Oh, come on, we all learned it. I don't have enough faith. God is really impatient with me. He's not happy. You know a great, amazing strategy that works that Satan uses to make us, to draw us into the deception that God's heart is not for us? He gets us to thinking we don't measure up. We don't measure up. We start to buy that, and that poison kind of infiltrates our spiritual system. And pretty soon, how are we looking at God? Well, in our doctrinal statement, a lot of times we do well, right? This is how we look at God. I'm going to hold on to that. That's a good start. But the goal of doctrine, the goal of the truth of the Bible is a connecting relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A love relationship in which He transforms us. And for those who've trusted Christ as Savior, there is no condemnation. I, I wish I could have found the figure. I mean, just through the power of the Holy Spirit by a miracle, if we could put up there the number of hours that we cumulatively have wasted in that lie, the doubt, the sadness that it's brought it, the questioning of whether we really do have a heart for God, and then eventually the questioning of whether He has a heart for us. Satan wins. We've got to keep an eye on this. This is a huge victory. If I was a Christian, I wouldn't feel angry, anxious, sad, or discouraged. Next slide, please. <clears throat> There's Bible to back that up, right? Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Boy, 
What does that mean? Just what it says, Mr. Hatfield. Literally, it says, be anxious for nothing. That means that all worry, all concern, all questioning is sin. Turn to Philippians 4, 6, would you please? I want you to see something that is a good interpretation tool for the Bible. Philippians 4, 6. It's in here, isn't it? Don't get old. It's really embarrassing when everybody finds it before I do. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Okay. Sounds like a command. In the original language, it is a command. But see where the verse goes. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. And see, we take a little piece of a verse, and we interpret it in a legalistic rules, commandment way. Well, it is a command. And when somebody like me, who's learned a little bit about moving with the verse and seeing what's the message of the whole verse, says something like I'm saying, well, then you're just soft on that. Literal interpretation means... You know, if I make you mad, you might remember, so I'm going to say this. You don't have any idea what literal interpretation means. Because mostly, we Baptists use literal interpretation to mean what I think it means when I first read it. Huh? One person's laughing. (laughs) We have to be careful not to do that. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know the original languages. But our heart needs to be intent is, what is God saying? What's he saying here? What do you use Paul to say here to the Philippians? And you watch the flow of the truth and apply that to your lives. There is no command here, straight out, number 11 commandment, that any kind of worry or anxiety is wrong. Is some wrong? I don't know. It's not my business. I can hardly sort out my heart with God, let alone yours. I mean, really, does it really matter? Where is the point of sin? That's an issue between me and God. And I start to look at you. It's hopeless. But I don't say that. This is a literal interpretation. You're struggling with concerns about your child. You need more faith. That is from the pit of hell. It's a perversion of a beautiful provision of God. That is faith in him. Feelings are not sin. I'd be glad if anybody would show me in the Bible a contradiction to that. Feelings are not sin. They actually are, become a temptation. And at some point, they may be involved in all the sin. But a feeling is not a sin. The Bible doesn't ever say that. But we so live in our feelings because we're human. That's not an insult. The feelings are the reality wow, I feel like I want that new car that my neighbor 
and I really want it. Well, at some point, that feeling becomes a temptation of coveting whatever, and God and I have got some issues to deal with. Pay attention to your own feelings and recognize that they're feelings, and they're kind of like a, a, a light on the dashboard of the car. Most time you have a light on the dashboard of the car, it's before the car just stops dead. <laughs> it's a warning. Something we need to pay attention to because it could be serious. Most of the time it's not. That's what feelings are. Wait. Whoa. Every time Jeff preaches, I feel like I should be the one up here. That's not true at all. <laughs> but, you see, it's a feeling. Is that sin? No, it's a warning light to go, now Jack, look, is there something inside here going on? Next slide, please. Second thing Satan wants you to know this morning, oh, that is a terrible, that's a terrible approach to Scripture, isn't it? Unless you have a growing, healthy fear of what Satan wants to do in your life. When I sin, God is disgusted with me. Is he? We've talked about this before. You know, if Satan's going to pick on me about this, he doesn't pick on the things that I seldom do. In fact, he kind of goes the other way, right? Did you see what so-and-so did? And the little voice in me goes, I never do that. I don't do that. Oh, get off it. You people are so good at ranking. And we rank ourselves with others. And our doctrine is, no, we don't. We're all the same in Jesus Christ. We're all important. He's made us all different. Oh, my goodness. Did you hear what they did? Ranking is not a feeling. It's a sinful attitude and action. When I sin, God is disgusted with me. How am I going to come to him and ask forgiveness? Isn't that a genius strategy for Satan? Oh, and if it's the seventh time, that's the magic number, you know. If it's the seventh time I've committed that sin, it's probably worse if it's the 112th. I've never done that. Oh, wait, no, it's because I quit counting. I'm not sure. <laughs> he can get to you and me, can't he? And it's a great avenue for us to begin to think, well, yes, that is a point. And he takes advantage of your heart for God. Do you have a heart for God? Yes, you do. You've trusted Christ as Savior. You have a growing heart for God. And you do the dumb ranking thing, and you go, well, you know, that person's pretty spiritual. And that's cliche for heart for God. How do you know? You can't see their heart. God cannot be disgusted with you when you sin. Would you please explain to me how he can? Our sins as far as the east from the west. Every sin, past, present, and future has been forgiven. And we have the righteousness of Christ. He can't be any more upset with us than he can his own son. 
It's not just that our sins are covered. It's just as if we'd lived like Christ. That's the imputed righteousness that we have. Wow, Satan'd like to take that down, wouldn't he? Huh? Well, he does. I was raised Catholic. Man, when I was a kid, I thought, what happens if I sin and get hit by a bus and don't make it to confession? That's a side, side thing here. Okay. Next slide. God cannot be any more disgusted with me, even for sin, than he is with Jesus Christ. Okay? I want you to vote in your own heart. True or not true? And then if you said true, you're right. <laughs> and reaffirm that. Reaffirm that. It's something we can grab onto. It helps us appreciate the gift of righteousness we have in Jesus Christ. I mean, if somebody comes up and tells you, you can fly like a bird without any help from anything. You could just fly like a bird. What do you say? Well, maybe. I, you know, that might be possible. Well, Satan comes with these lies that can appeal to us in a certain kind of fake holy way, and we consider it. And we don't stop and think. That actually mocks what Christ did on the cross and in the grave. It mocks it. Do we have his righteousness or not? Then tell me how God can be disgusted with us. And I had a, had a man in Haynes come up to me after I preached a sermon like this, and he's like, but Jack, if we do something wrong, doesn't he have to at least act a little upset? I'll leave that one with you. Talk about human ways. Next slide, please. Number three, when my struggles in life continue on, it can only mean, number one, I must be messing up or God is trying to teach me something. Well, you know, we can say God's trying to teach me something in a right way. I want to learn. I don't understand. But it's pretty hard for it to not be a compromise of God's heart when we're saying that like, he's keeping me under this so that he can teach me something and I guess I must be missing it even though I'm praying and trying to figure it out. What does that say about the heart of God? That's a God I don't want to come to. I know I'm messed up. You know you're messed up. We know we do wrong. And it's not hypocrisy to not come here and confess it. We're training new ushers to be at the door, and when you come in, they're going to ask you what the worst sin you committed this week was, because then we won't be hypocrites, right? And the ushers will be out of a job. <laughs> Don't buy into that. Our sins are forgiven past, present, future in the powerful blood of Jesus Christ. They are covered, and we are made new creatures. And if Satan can take that from us or begin to compromise it, wow, where's it going to go? I hope when we all leave here, we have a greater healthy fear of what he wants to do and how vulnerable we are sometimes. You know, in the Christian life, we make choices all the time about what we're going to invest in and what the priorities are, right? That's, 
That's gifting and training and where you've been raised and whatever. And some people say prayer meeting is the most important thing. And some people say, you know, the most important thing is that we grow in our rock-solid confidence in the heart of God for us. Because that's something that Satan is attacking. And it messes up everything else. Prayer and service, mission, etc. Next slide, please. And besides, when there's trouble in our life, and it's ongoing, the times we tend to say, God must be trying to teach me something. I'm not getting it. That could be. Number five up there says Hebrews 12.8. says what father doesn't discipline his children. And the best way for us to understand that as a believer who God doesn't spank, but he does train. And there's plenty of opportunity in this life for him to train us in difficult times, right? Now, I'm not saying God never brings a difficult time. I'm just giving you some modern-day wisdom. He doesn't need to. There's plenty of difficult times for us to be trained. Sometimes he does. People make bad choices, people around you, and bad things happen. We make bad choices, and difficulties come. The fall... My wife will tell you if you ask her, what's Jack's answer to everything? The fall. (laughs) Well, the chaos that sin brought into our lives in this world is extraordinary. And so it can be just that. It doesn't have to be God saying, I want you to learn something. But we can learn something about the heart of God in every circumstance, no matter how it came about. So we are people who need to embrace that. Not like the man who said, yeah, you know, I'm so glad I have diabetes and tries to explain to me theologically why. It's like, I'm not him and I'm not even glad he has diabetes. But he said, God's teaching him through it. Well, praise God. He's teaching him through it. But I'm not going to put one of my legs on a railroad track, let it get cut off so God can teach me things. And that's not what he wants. Look for the opportunities, because there's plenty of them. But we can't really sort out most of that to one of the most common questions when ongoing trouble and hurt and pain comes. Why is this happening? We can't sort it out, but we know the one who can. Next slide, please. Number four, I have to keep achieving to please God. Serving and sacrificing. We are the people who believe in salvation by faith, not of works, right? Well, I got to tell you, most people who are observing us out there think that we serve God after we're saved by faith, that we serve Him by works, that we're keeping Him happy by works. (laughs) I think some of you were thinking... Yeah, those poor deceived people. We do the same thing. We're the ones that are compelled by this lie that somehow we have to serve God more. Pray more. And there's some really serious problems with that. 
Where's the line? Satan can't take your salvation away, but he can take your peace away because there's never a line where we've prayed enough. And here, here's a good one. (laughs) I love this one. So what do we do? We turn it around. And we've never prayed enough. And we've fallen into Satan's trap that we don't measure up. Every time we apply a religious principle to a relational relationship with God, we end up with these stupid analysis. Of course you can never pray enough. That's a lie. There's only one person who knows when enough is, and he's not keeping score. He's the only one who has a right to keep score, and he's not keeping score. Pray. If you're worried about enough, which we are as humans, just say, God, what's enough? Talk to him. But his heart is for us so much. He doesn't just go, 15 minutes, prayer. Hey, not too bad. Hour. (laughs) That's us. That's not him. Satan wants us to think that God does that. Next slide, please. Because of God's overwhelming forgiveness and complete cleansing in Jesus, he gave you and me the gift of eternal love relationship with him. Eternal love relationship with him. There's an antidote right there to all of these lies that Satan is trying to get us to believe. So can I ask a hard question? It's not hard because you're going to be mad. It's hard because it's a hard question. Am I supposed to try? Am I supposed to keep trying? Am I supposed to work hard at the Christian life? Well, only if I want blessings and only if, (laughs) if I really believe that that's the best part of life here and it is the life forever in heaven. Of course we're supposed to be zealous and be available. We're to serve and love and forgive and do the things that Jesus told us to do. And then we make a work out of it. Well, only if you do it sincerely. Yeah. So, I dare you to work on your sincerity. I dare you. Can you work on your sincerity? All you can do is question your sincerity. How do you work on your sincerity? There's no sincerity button under here. That is another trap of Satan. It's a relationship in which we function. Probably, I might be surprised in heaven. I probably never had one service to God that was 100% pure motive. Probably not. That doesn't matter either because Jesus died for that. When Satan comes at us with these giant, holy-sounding, humble concerns, we need to recognize what the truth is. Jesus Christ died so that we could have an eternal love relationship with him. 
Eternal means forever. No missing moments, days, no bad times. Last week, I had a really bad day. I wouldn't be here if you guys had witnessed some of it. Oh, now don't go there and just leave the rest of the sermon. Because you got stuff in your life, okay? It was covered under the blood of Jesus Christ, and Satan tried. There were all kinds of these thoughts and temptations that came to me. And I considered some of them. Lies. Sometimes it's the gut-wrenching work, and the thing we're to be zealous at is to turn to God based on what we know and not feel and say, how do you feel about this? And he says, I love you. Well, yeah, but didn't you just see? Well, I can't answer him. I don't know what he'd say because he's God and he sees and doesn't know, or I don't know how he does all that. But check in with him. And that lie of Satan that's trying to get a hold on my soul drifts away. Next slide, please. Number five, God used me. God can't use me unless I have it together spiritually. You know, (laughs) Satan kind of creates his own phrases and then we repeat them, right? What does it mean to have it together spiritually? Your assignment is to go home and write a 10-page paper on that, okay? And if you're honest with what the Bible says, you'll need 30 or 40 or 100 pages. Because if it means doing everything that God says to do and doing it right and doing it sincerely and doing it out of a heart of love, not anything else like performance, wow, that's going to be a long paper, And I guarantee you on page 5 or 7 or 15 or 45, you're going to go. That's the wrong direction. And the relationship at the center of this will free us from the lies of Satan. Next slide, please. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. I I'm not, don't have time to go to the verse. I'm sorry. One of my favorite passages. It says, we have this treasure of the glory of God in earthen vessels. Pa- Paul's kind way of saying cracked pots. You know? And we sort of live life with the foil around it. You know the colored foil they put around the uh, pot that make it look a lot better? But it's cracked underneath there. It just means that there isn't any glory of God that we can participate in or add to out of who we are. We're cracked pots. We're messed up. And when we realize that, we have to turn to God for all things. Do you believe in the power of God to love you? You do, don't you? You believe in the power of God to love you? Or can you be so bad he can't? Do you believe in the power of God for you to love him? I don't believe in your power to love him. I don't believe in my power. to. Do you believe in the power of God through Jesus Christ to love him? Can you define what that means? It would be a great exercise to go home and work on that. But it's a relational thing. 
It's not a definitional thing. You have everything you need to be loved by God. You have everything you need to love and serve Him. You have everything you need to walk with Him now through eternity. But there is this oppositional, oppositional being who has some kind of access. I don't know exactly how it works, but he can whisper in and bring temptation and help us. And his goal is for you to not believe that. Because if he gets that foothold, who knows where we go? Next slide, please. You notice how fake truths are me-centered? Me Number one truth, I, I'm not good enough. I am not good enough. Number two, I am too bad for God. Number three, I keep messing up, not learning. Number four, I don't do enough. Number five, I am not spiritual enough. Are you spiritual enough? Yes, in Jesus Christ. Do you do enough? I can't answer that because it's a relationship, not a performance. It's not an eight-to-five job to count how many bricks we put in the wall. Do you keep messing up? Yes. Is it covered under the blood of Jesus Christ? Yes. Well, then why believe Satan's lie? I do. I mean, really. I get caught up in something, and it's kind of like, huh. Do you know the effect of sin on, of intentional sin on God's forgiveness? Because intentional sin to us seems a lot worse, right? Well, did they do it on purpose? Did they decide? Or did it sneak up on them? Ah, human baloney. The effect of intentional sin is nothing when it comes to forgiveness. But as a believer, the effect on me is, the more intentional it is, the more days it is for, I'll probably come back and confess. But God is exactly the same. Ready to receive me in open, with open arms. Do you believe that? Well, then tell Satan that the next time he tries to tell you that's not true. Next slide, please. <clears throat> Is it enough? It's enough. We have the greatest Blessings of relationship with God in our hands. And somebody is talking us out of it? And sometimes it's each other. Spurring us on to greater performance. I, you know, I, I've never been confronted with a religious lie by another Christian in an area that they, always, they already struggled with. It's always something they don't struggle with. So what comes after all these lies? We buy in, it starts to get a little compromised, and pretty soon we're judging each other, and pretty soon nobody out there wants to be a part of this. It's not God. And it's not the provision of Jesus Christ that's lacking. It is us being careful and realizing how much influence Satan can have. <coughs> Next slide. That's it. Um, we're listening to the song, It Is Well, this morning. Would you leave here pondering this? 
As a believer, Satan can't destroy your salvation. But he has a goal for you to come to doubt whether it's well with your soul. And when we do that, it's doubting Christ, his sacrifice and his gifts. So call him a liar. Turn to God and say, what's going on? Help me sort this out. And he says, come over and get on my lap. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you that you are with us through the ups and downs and the failures and the successes. We pray that you, your Holy Spirit will give us a greater sensitivity when those things that seem to come to us are a lie from Satan. He is clever. We need you. We need you to give us discernment. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.